Shelby told me this week, he said, Gail, you got the name of this class wrong. So you should have named it the more than you ever wanted to know about Hebrews class. <laughs> and, and, and the lesson today is going to be kind of like that because, you know, we could just go straight through and stick right in the chapter of Hebrews, but there's so much interesting stuff to know about the Old Testament scriptures that he quotes, and, and we're going to look at some of the kind of interesting things that, that uh, relate to the scriptures today. And in Hebrews, we're at chapter 1, verse 3. And what we had been talking about the last couple of weeks, or what the writer of Hebrews was talking about, was the fact that angels were central figures in the Jewish history and they represented God in many many situations and so they revered angels and and um, there was apparently some discussion as to whether Jesus outranked angels or not and and that these early Christians were getting a little confused so he's going back over the history with them and and in the first bit he had first few verses of chapter one he had made it clear that Jesus was deity. He was the son of God. He was of God and just the very nature of God. And he's gone to a lot of trouble so far in the first few verses to um, lay out the problem of whether Jesus outranks the angels or not. So in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, he gets down to business here. He says, after making purification for sins... Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So that's his statement right off the bat. He's, he's saying, okay, I'm, here's, here's where I'm drawing the line in the sand. I'm saying Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, and he's more important than the angels. And then he proceeds to give them the proofs from the Old Testament that he had been doing all along. So the proofs of that statement are in verse 5. For which, to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, or I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? Well, these, these quotes are both from the Old Testament. The first one is from Psalm 2. And it was a psalm, although it was written by David, it's a psalm that the Jews recognized as being messianic. And, and we're going to read it. You're going to be able to tell why. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, which is... Messiah, right? That's obviously talking about Messiah there. That's what their name for him was, was the anointed. So the, the rulers of the earth are, and the kings of the earth are plotting against the Messiah. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And everybody who is in the Revelation class will recognize that as part of the prophecy throughout the Bible about Jesus coming back for the thousand-year reign and being physically, literally king in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, and where, the, where he will 
rule the world from there for a thousand years. Then in verse uh, seven, it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, now remember, this is David writing this psalm, but that couldn't possibly apply to him, that prophecy. He, he couldn't be the son that's being talked about because, you know, the nations of the earth were not his possession. He did not break them with a rod of iron. He fought them the whole time he was in power and, in fact, had civil war while he was in power. So um, this, this prophecy that David is writing down is a dialogue between God and the Messiah. It is talking about Jesus not in his role as deity, but in his role as an incarnate man, a human being, because it says he's going to inherit the, the earth. He says, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Well, if Jesus is in his role or personhood as God, that makes no sense. He already owns it all, right? But it's Jesus in his incarnate human form that it's talking about. And we have to remember that when G Jesus isn't just going to come one time as a baby, he's coming a second time as a man also. But he's coming back in his glorified body, his resurrected body, just like what we have when we get resurrected. We'll all be, we'll all be like that. As the incarnate man, he's the king who returns triumphantly in the flesh to rule the earth in the flesh. And it makes perfect sense then that his inheritance is the nations of the earth because if you think about it that's who he came to save the first time he came was the nations of the earth that's who he came to save and give eternal life so he has a has a heritage look at philippians 2 5 through 11 you should think in the same way christ jesus does in his very nature he was god but he did not think that being equal with god was something he should hold on to Instead, he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant. He was made in human form. He appeared as a man. He came down to the lowest level. He obeyed God completely, even though it led to his death. In fact, he died on a cross. So God lifted him up to the highest place. He gave him the name that is above every name. When the name of Jesus is spoken, everyone's knee will bow to worship him. That's in the future. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow to worship him. Everyone's mouth will say that Jesus Christ is Lord and God the Father will receive the glory. So when Jesus came the first time, did he accomplish his mission to save us? Well, he did accomplish it. Okay, we are saved, but we just haven't got to heaven yet. <laughs> We're not. The, the, the millennial kingdom hasn't come. The new heaven and earth hasn't come. There's still things to happen. But he did pay the price, and he left a down payment for us. And we will become his inheritance, and he will receive us as his inheritance when he comes the second time. The part of the psalm that the writer of Hebrews emphasizes is the part where God says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And the writer of Hebrews says, Did God ever say that to an angel? Did he ever say that to anyone but the Messiah. And he, and he gives another quote in verse 5 of Hebrews 1. He says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, 
I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That is a different quote. Sounds just like the other one, but it's an actually a different quote. It's also from the Old Testament, and it's also from during the time of David. This time, it's a quote from the word of the Lord that the prophet Nathan gave to David when David was pressing the Lord to let him build the Lord a permanent temple. Because up to this point, all they had was the tabernacle, the tent. And the Lord spoke to, to David through Nathan, and it's recorded in 2 Samuel 7, 5 through 16. Go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? If you think about the history of the Israelites, God never wanted fancy churches. He, whenever they had altars to build, he said, just pile up some stones. Don't make them fancy because you defile them when you make them fancy. And, and, and he's saying, you know, David, why do you want to build me a house of cedar? Did I ever ask for that? No. He's, all he really wants is us to worship him. You know, he, he really doesn't care about the big buildings. He says, now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. See how different that is than the messianic prophecy where it was saying, you know, you'll rule the world and crush the nations with rod of iron. And, and here, that was to the Messiah. This is the promise to David, that his name will be great, like the other great men of the earth. And that part of the prophecy has certainly been fulfilled. David is far more famous and his exploits far better documented than many of the ancient kings. I mean, think how many hundreds and thousands of ancient kings, we don't even know their names anymore. You know. So then the Lord says, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from that day, the day I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Well, that obviously has not been fulfilled yet. That's a future prophecy. That'll happen when Jesus comes the second time. And then there's this really weird phrase. It, it says, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Now, this is very odd phraseology. Usually, God would just say, just like he did before, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I'll make a house for you. Okay? But that's not how he said it. And it's significant that he said it like he did, where the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When, whenever you see the Lord says the Lord will do something, it's almost always in the context of a messianic prophecy. And you need to stop when you see that kind of double talk phrase and look with fresh eyes at, at whatever you're reading because you're in the context now of a messianic prophecy. And usually you can verify that by the context. You can tell from, from what you're reading. 
In, there's another example in uh, Psalm 110, verse 1 and 2, where it's a psalm of David, and it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So that's similar phraseology. That's messianic prophecy. It's God talking about Messiah. So then go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And, and um, let's say we got down to verse 12. So we've got that transition where the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. That's the transition into talking about the Messiah. And, and here's what he says. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That was not talking about Solomon. Solomon's throne did not last forever. Okay, This is, is and can only talk about the Messiah. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And that, of course, happens through Jesus. Now, the... The weird thing here is that little phrase, you know, right in the middle of what he's talking about Jesus, he says, when he commits iniquity. Well, people do flips over this, trying to figure out how can this be a messianic prophecy, but right in the middle it says Jesus committed iniquity. Okay, So you will see commentaries go to great lengths to dance around this and say, well, that little bit was about Solomon. Then he went right back to talking about Messiah. Or he'll, you know, they come up with all kinds of theories. And so I'm going to give you my theory and and uh, let you let you see what you think. And you can take it either way. But I think that we ha- the key is in and another messianic prophecy, and that's in Isaiah 53, verse two through six. And this is definitely a, right out of the middle of a big messianic prophecy. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. It's talking about Jesus growing up. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, I think that's what it's talking about in the, in the prophecy in Samuel. That Jesus, as a man, did not commit iniquity, but our iniquity was laid on him the same as if he had committed it. And I think that's what the prophecy that Nathan gave to David was about. And I have some, some 
this is where we're going to just diverge just a little bit and look at some really interesting stuff in, in the Old Testament with that prophecy of Nathan's. So it's a very famous prophecy. And it's quoted, that exact same prophecy. We, we read it out of uh, Samuel, but that exact same prophecy is copied in First Chronicles 17 as well. Uh, as you know, those, those books ran parallel for a while. And in the, in the version of the prophecy that's in First Chronicles, the bit about the iniquities was omitted. And so you, you begin to wonder when the scribe was writing that down, did he omit that part of the prophecy because it didn't make any sense to him? I think that's entirely possible. Okay. Other people argue the other way. This is one of the places where the commentaries will come back and they'll say, well, we really should use the one in First Chronicles because somebody else just added that phrase about iniquities in the other one. So you, can, you could go either way, but I think the iniquities are supposed to be in there. I think they're part of what the Messiah came and was all about. And then there's a third time in Scripture where this prophecy is related, but this time it's in Psalm 89 and it's as a hymn, as a song. And the song is written about David. And it's obvious from this psalm that the psalm writer, who was not David, thought that whole entire prophecy that Nathan gave to, to David was about David and not the Messiah. And you can tell where he's edited the story to make it work. So if you look at Psalm 89, verse 20 through 37, you'll see what this is, this is just, this is how I interpret it. This is what I think happened to this story. And, and this is how I think men edit God to make the facts fit the circumstances. This is where, this is the same kind of thing you get where people will say, you know, the Pope's the Antichrist and Hitler's the Antichrist and World War II was Armageddon and, you know, people edit current events Edit God's word to make current events fit them. Okay. Look at what he said in Psalm 89. I have found, pardon? Uh, verse 20 through 37. I have found David my servant, and with my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of heavens. So you can see how he's applying all of these messianic prophecies to David, this, this author. And then here's where he, where he rationalizes the iniquities part. This, he says, if his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. So you see how he kind of made it work? Um, 
And then it goes on to say, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. And that was the end of his little song. So I think it's better to stick to the original prophecy, which I think is most faithfully rendered in, in the um, second Samuel. And from, it's from that messianic prophecy that the writer of Hebrews quotes. He quotes the part where God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And the writer of Hebrews says, OK, guys, was he talking about an angel here? No. Was he talking to an angel? No. He was talking about Messiah, the Son of God. And he goes on in, in Hebrews 1.6 to quote another Old Testament scripture. And that says, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. Now that's a quote from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. But if you turn to Deuteronomy 32 verse 43 in your Bible, you will not find those words there. And the reason is, back then, in the New Testament era, they used a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint, because 70 guys put it together, I think. And, and it, you see an, abbrevi an abbreviation like the NIV, the you know, KGV, you know how we abbreviate our versions and our translations? The Septuagint is the LXX. It's just Roman numerals for 70. And that's all that Septuagint means. The Septuagint version is the one that has these words. And Jesus used the Septuagint version. It was the common language of the time, the Greek. And so when you see in the New Testament Jesus quoting from the Old Testament or the apostles quoting from the Old Testament, they're quoting from the Septuagint translation. And um, you probably don't have one of those handy, so I put it in your scripture references. And if you look in your scripture references, Deuteronomy 32:43, the the words that the writer in Hebrews quoted, I put in bold, I think, on there. Um, it says, Rejoice ye heavens with him, and let all the angels of God worship him. And then the rest of the translation is basically just like you have in your, in your regular Bibles. If you ever want to see a Septuagint translation, if you're ever working on it, there's one at www.ecmarsh.com. It's free. It's ecmarsh.com slash lxx. It's, it's a free online translation. The point of the writer of Hebrews is that this verse says that all the angels of God will worship him. Well, who's him? Is it the Messiah? Yes. But to tell that, you have to back up and look at the context of Deuteronomy 32. And you have to back up just a couple of, if you back up just a few verses to verse 35, which is just precedes this, he says, in the day of vengeance, I will recompense. And, and as you know, the day of vengeance is that in time, when Jesus comes the second time, who, whensoever their foot shall be tripped up, for on the day of their for the day of their destruction is near to them, and the judgments at hand are close upon you. For the Lord shall judge his people and shall be comforted over his servants. And then it continues with verse 43 that says, Rejoice in him being the Messiah. So you, can, you know, from the context 
of that scripture, you can tell he's talking about the Messiah. And if you look closely at verse 6 in Hebrews 1, you'll see that it says again. I don't know if you noticed that the first time through, but it says when he again brings the firstborn into the world. Let all the angels of God worship him. So that is talking about the second coming explicitly. So, so far, these are the translations they're used to, and they agree with this. They, these early Jews would have recognized that these were messianic prophecies. And so now the writer of Hebrews gives them a one-two punch because his next quotes prove using Old Testament scripture, that there is no doubt that angels are below the level of Messiah. So let's look at the Hebrews 1, verses 7 through 12 first. This is his argument. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. That was what we just read out of the Septuagint. But of the Son, he says, your seat of power, O God, is forever and ever. And the rod of your kingdom is a rod of righteousness. You have been a lover of righteousness and a hater of evil. And so God, your God, has put the oil of joy on your head more than on the heads of those who are with you. And there's some of that strange phraseology again. You see the, the God, your God, you know, God talking to himself in this first paragraph that should raise a little red flag to you that that it is another device that is used when God the Father is talking about the Messiah. You, Lord, at the first did put the earth on its base, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will come to their end, but you are forever. They will become old as a robe. They will be rolled up like a cloth, even like a robe, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. The scripture says angels are winds, flames of fire, servants, but the son is God and will be in power forever. The next quote, verses 10 through 12, is interesting because it's taken from a different psalm. It's from Psalm 102. And if you go back to that psalm, you can see it, it also is a messianic prophecy. You have to back up to about verse 11 in it to, to tell that. But you will recognize it. The, the, the psalm's intro says, it is the psalm of an afflicted man. Psalm 102, verse 11. My days are like the evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to show favor to her. The appointed time has come, for her stones are dear to your servants. Her very dust moves them to pity. The nations will fear the name of the Lord. All the kings of the earth will revere your glory. For the Lord will rebuild Zion and appear in his glory. Obviously, second coming stuff. He will respond to the prayer of the destitute. He will not despise their plea. Let this be written for a future generation that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high. From heaven he viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and release those condemned to death. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples and the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord. And that whole assembling of all the nations to worship the Lord, we studied that in Revelation as well, that that happens during that thousand-year reign. And then comes the quote that the guy in Hebrews picked up. He said, In the course of my life, 
He broke my strength. He cut short my days. So I said, do not take me away, O my God, in the midst of my days. Your years go on through all generations. In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing you will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. So you can see almost verbatim what the the writer in Hebrew was quoting. And we already looked in an earlier lesson at Jesus' role in creation. And this psalm repeats that and goes on to say, you know, what we know from our Revelation study, that the old heaven and earth will pass away and a new one will take its place. But Christ will reign forever unchanged. And finally, the writer of Hebrews gives one last proof text that Jesus outranks the angels. He says in verse 13, But of which of the angels has he said at any time, Take your seat at my right hand till I put all those who are against you under your feet? Well, we looked at that verse a moment ago. That's from the Messianic prophecy in Psalm 110, verse 1, where the Lord said to my Lord, there's your duplicate phraseology, Be seated at my right hand till I put all those who are against you under your feet. And that's being said about the Messiah. That's never said about an angel anywhere. It's only ever said about Christ. First Peter uh, 3, verse 21 and 22 spells it out. Baptism saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So at this point, the writer of Hebrews has like pounded into the ground his proof, there's no way they can argue with him that Jesus does not outrank the angels. He says about the angels in verse 14, Are they not all helping spirits who are sent out as servants to those whose heritage will be salvation? Do you remember when Jesus was tempted in the desert and at the end of that temptation, Satan brought him to the temple to a high point and said, I ah, just... Jump off. Prove that you're God. Jump off. The angels will catch you. They will not let you fall. Throughout the Old Testament, angels were sent to do God's bidding, to protect the innocent, to destroy evil, to fight for Israel, to bring messages. But never, ever were they equated with the Messiah, the Son of God. And in Hebrews 1.14, that verse we just read about the, the, the angels being helping spirits, Some translations will say ministering or serving spirits. The Hebrew word is liturgicus, the same root that our word for liturgy comes from, liturgical. The angels are liturgical spirits. They surround the throne of God, worship and minister to him, performing whatever task is is assigned. And I I think I put the actual Greek definition in in your notes. And... To you know, close this particular part out, Revelation 5, 11 and 12 say, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. That is a picture of what an angel is. And we're going to, we have finished chapter one. We're going to be able to get started on chapter two. 
And now the writer moves to his central point, which is the purpose of writing this book in the first place. Hebrews 2, verse 1. We must pay careful, the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. That's his statement. That's the message he wants to get across. We're drifting away. We need to pay better attention to the message. And then he begins his proof. He begins his argument to prove why it's so important to listen to the message. He says, for since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? I mean, obviously, the message that was spoken through angels would be the message from a Jewish point of view. Remember, he's talking to Jews here. And that would be the Mosaic Covenant, the old law. We always think of the Mosaic Covenant as being given directly to Moses, right? Bought from God. But that's not how these Jews, these early Christians, saw it. They had been raised to understand that the law was received by Moses from an angel. Or from angels in plural. And you can tell that from how they record the story in various places in the Bible. Look at Exodus 19, verse 9 through 11. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. And then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. The people had basically said, we don't want to talk to him. You talk to him. And so the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And then if you, you know, skip, they do all their preparations, skip down to verse 16. It says, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Okay. Who was in the thick cloud? It's not a trick question. The Lord. He said he would, right? He said he was going to be. The Lord was in the thick cloud. Who blew the trumpet? <laughs> Okay, here's another one. This was the fact that that was an angel there present was confirmed by Moses himself when he retold this story. Look at Deuteronomy 33, verses 1 and 2. This is where the Israelites are about to cross over into the promised land. Moses is about to die and he's giving them his blessing and he's retelling the story. This is the blessing of Moses, the man of God, pronounced upon the Israelites before his death. And I'm going to read you two versions of this. The first version is out of kind of a translation that is one of our modern translations. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and revealed himself to Israel from Seir. He appeared in splendor from Mount Paran and came forth with 10,000 holy ones. With his right hand, he gave fiery law to them. So, if you look, I, this is a place where you would want to go back and look at the Septuagint version to see what it says. And the Septuagint is a little more specific about who those 10,000 holy ones were. If you look, it says at the very end of the Septuagint, with the ten thousands of Kadesh, on his right hand were his angels with him. Okay, so that's, you can see how different the translations of the Hebrew can come across. 
but both of them are saying that angels were there. And there's another reference to the involvement of angels in the Old Covenant right in the middle of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. If you look at Exodus 23, verse 20 through 22, the Lord himself said, look, I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be, excuse me, an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. So what that's saying is the Lord himself is setting this angel up and saying that follow this angel, the angel that's going to be in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and the angel that's going to talk to Moses. Obey him as you would obey me. And I think it's really interesting that that the Lord said it that way, and it, this was repeated again. Remember, of course, you remember, Moses goes up, he's gone for so long, the Israelites go crazy, they build the, the golden calf. I don't know what Aaron was thinking. But <laughs> you would think he would have known better. But Moses came down and he got so upset, he broke the first Ten Commandments, right? And and he ended up having to beg the Lord not to just absolutely wipe out the Israelites right then and there. You know, badly begun, poorly started, let's try again. Well, Moses just stood between the Israelites and the Lord. And here's what the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 1 through 3. Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will, I, the Lord, will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. No joke, right? Well, Moses then, if you read the rest of the story, begged the Lord, please don't make me go without you <laughs> please come with us it said it's fine for the angel to come but lord you come too and in the end the lord said relented and said he would also come but that angel didn't go anywhere that angel was still there leading and guiding these israelites and stephen you remember the first martyr in the new testament stephen who was stoned he gave as his defense before the Jews, he recounted the history of the Israelites. And when he got to the part about the giving of the Mosaic Covenant, here's what he said in Acts 7, verse 37 and 38. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. And that, was, that would be the Messiah that he's talking about. He, he was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. And then in verses 52 and 53, Stephen concluded his defense saying, Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the Messiah. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Paul also explained the role of angels in the giving of the Mosaic law. Look at Galatians 3 verse 16. 
The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, that being the Messiah, to whom the promise referred, had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator, the mediator being Moses. So I don't know if you ever realized how ingrained that was in the Jewish culture and tradition that it was angels that brought the law, the law with a capital T-L, okay, to the Jews. Would yeah. that be the law of God or the law of Moses? What they really call it? They called it the covenant, and it was, uh-huh, it was. In Galatians, do they call it the law of Moses? Yeah, and it is called the law of Moses, the same thing. It's the same thing. It's all the same. All different terms for the same thing. Just like we would call, you know, the new covenant, the gospel, the good news. It's just same words for, different words for the same thing. Is that why they call him the prophet and some people don't believe he's the son of God? Exactly. The question was, is that why some people call Jesus a pro- the prophet and don't believe he's the son of God? Absolutely. And in fact, we're going to look at a place later about where the Jews during Jesus' time were expecting. See, they were expecting, I'll just tell you now, they were expecting Elijah to come and the, this prophet to come. Before the Messiah came, they never realized that the prophet was going to be the Messiah. And that's still the case, right, see? And if you read through Stephen's defense, Stephen is saying, this is the Messiah. He is the prophet. This one and the same, and you killed him, just like you killed every other prophet that God ever sent to you. And so... You will find elsewhere in the New Testament people asking Jesus, are you, are you the prophet or are you Elijah? Why were they expecting Elijah? That, and I, I'll, I, don't, I don't cover that in this class, but it's other similar prophecies where Elijah is, is prophesied to come back before Messiah comes. And so you'll probably remember in reading your New Testament where John the Baptist was asked, is he Elijah? And Jesus was asked, you know, and, and in these, when you sort it all out, basically Jesus said John the Baptist was Elijah. That's, it wasn't going to be Elijah, you know, ghost from the dead. It was John the Baptist functioning in the role of Elijah, preparing the way of the Lord. So you'll find different um, arguments about that in the New Testament because there's different quotes. There's also a quote in there where it says he wasn't Elijah and it gets very confusing. So I left all that out. We'll do that at another time. <laughs> but because what our point is here is that he's the prophet that, that Moses had prophesied would come. And, and we know him to be the Messiah. The early Christians knew him to be the Messiah, but the Jews didn't then and still don't now believe that the prophet and the Messiah are one and the same. So the, the writer's next point, hang on, I need a drink. My throat's hurting. The next point is that the law spoken through the angels was binding, right? And disobedience had dire consequences. And, and when the law was given, the Lord proved it to them. The Lord 
showed them that it was special by accompanying it with signs and wonders, what we would call miracles. And he and just before the Israelites entered the promised land, Moses gathered them all together to remind them of the law and everything the Lord had done in the 40 years they'd been wandering around in that little desert. And Moses explained the blessing of obedience to the first to this first covenant and the consequences of disobedience. And these are listed in Deuteronomy 28 among various places. And I'm just going to kind of skip through it, but it basically says if you obey the Lord and follow his commands, the Lord is going to set you up high above all the nations and all these blessings are going to come on you. And then there's verses and verses and verses of blessings. You know, your women will never be barren. Your crops will never fail. The rain will always rain. You know, it's just all this huge list of blessings. You will be blessed. This is one of my favorite verses. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God and follow them, you'll always be at the top, never at the bottom. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, all these curses will come and overtake you. And then there's this whole list of awful, terrible, horrible curses that are going to bad things. Not, you know, we wouldn't call them curses, but they're just bad things that are going to happen to them. And it says, you will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and confusion of mind. At midday, you will grope about like a blind man in the dark. You will be unsuccessful in everything you do. Day after day, you'll be oppressed and robbed, and no one will rescue you. All these curses will, and actually, as you know, did come upon them because they didn't obey the commands. They will pursue you and overtake you till you're destroyed. And then, you know, there's a whole bunch more prophecy about all the horrible things that are going to happen because Moses was prophesying in the spirit at that point. And he told them exactly what was going to happen to them. They were going to be taken captive, and it's just very sad. And then at the end of that passage, in verse 64, he said, Then the Lord will scatter you among all nations, from one end of the earth to the other. And there you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among those nations you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing, and a despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both night and day, never sure of your life. And isn't that a poignant picture of the plight of Jews you know, and of Israel, even, even today? So the, what the, Hebrew, the guy in Hebrews is saying, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, Remember all this? Do you remember how awful the consequences were of ignoring the old covenant that was brought by angels? Can you imagine the consequences that would be attendant if we ignore the new covenant that was brought by the Messiah, by his very son? So he's got their attention at this point, you know, because nobody can even imagine worse things could happen to them than have already happened, right? And he says in Hebrews 2, verse 3, This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord Jesus, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. 
God also testified it to it by signs, wonders, various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, note that the writer of Hebrews says the message was confirmed to us by those who heard Jesus. So that tells us that whoever wrote Hebrews was not one of the original disciples. He came to Christ secondhand, like Paul did. He, he had to have been told about Christ and become a Christian from people who knew Jesus, but he never did know him personally. Jesus announced these signs and wonders and miracles when he started his ministry in Luke 4, verse 16 through 21. Remember, Jesus went, just after he came out from the temptation, he went home to his hometown and he went up to the synagogue and he got up to read, and remember he read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has appointed, anointed me to tell the good news to the poor. He has sent me to announce release to the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set oppressed people free, and to announce the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stopped right in the middle of that prophecy, because the next bit of it is all about the second coming and a day of vengeance. Because what Jesus was sent to do was to proclaim the good news and to say, you're going to see blind people see and lame people walk. And people in bondage are going to go free. We call the signs and wonders that they're referring to here, we, we call those miracles, right? And if you look at the word for miracle, in, in Greek it's semion, semion. It's, it's an indication, especially ceremonially or supernaturally, a miracle a sign, a token, or a wonder. So whenever you see in the New Testament, you see a miracle like the loaves and the fishes, they don't call it a miracle, they call it a sign. And that's really a much better word for it because we've come to associate miracles with magic acts. Okay, Jesus didn't do miracles as magic acts. He was, do, he was performing these as signs that he was authentic that God truly sent him because nobody but God could do the kinds of miracles or signs that, that, were, that he was doing. In John 5, 36, he, Jesus said, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. He said, you can see it with your own eyes that God sent me. Now, when Jesus, this is kind of interesting part here. When Jesus gave the disciples the Great Commission, he didn't just pat them on the behind and send them out, you know. He gave them the power to perform signs and wonders so that they also would be authenticated, so that people would believe them and listen to them. And he gave them the power to work signs and miracles before he was ever crucified. Okay, in Matthew 10, verse 1 through 8, he called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and heal every disease and sickness. And these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, 
freely give. Now shortly after this, he sent another 70 disciples and he empowered them as well to do signs and wonders. Look at Luke 10 verses 1 through 20. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two and two ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching. Satan fell, fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. See, Jesus didn't want us focusing on the magic act. Okay, that was just for us to know that God truly sent him. And he gave the ability to do signs and wonders to now, what, 82 people, right? Before he was ever crucified. But notice that the writer of Hebrews did not stop here. He said that God testified to the validity of the new covenant, the new message, through signs and wonders and something else. Did you see what the other thing was? The gifts of the Holy Spirit. The writer of Hebrews says the gifts of the Holy Spirit are part of God's testimony to the world that his message of salvation is true. Now, the coming of the Holy Spirit was foretold by Jesus to happen after his crucifixion. Remember, he told us about that just before he ascended into heaven. Look at Mark 16, verse 14. And afterward, he, this is after he had been resurrected. Jesus appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes in their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. And then in uh, Luke 24, verse 49, I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. What I find interesting is when Jesus was talking about, you know, all these signs are going to accompany you and you need to be clothed with power from on high. Who was he talking to? He was talking to the 11 disciples who already had the ability to do signs and wonders. So why did they need to stick around in Jerusalem for Pentecost? Did you ever think about that? Look who the Holy Spirit was given to. It, it was the Holy Spirit. What we're looking for here is what is it about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit that was different than or in addition to the ability to do miracles, signs, and wonders. Acts 1, 4. While he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. This is the 11. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Then you skip down, you know, all the other people who are around are just think they've gone utterly insane, you know, they're drunk or something because they're all babbling. And Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, obviously that prophecy encompasses the very end time, right? But he's saying it's starting here. It's starting at Pentecost. And this is the spirit that was referred to by Joel, the Holy Spirit. Well, originally the Holy Spirit was poured out on the 11, right? They started talking and speaking in tongues. But Paul said, Paul stands up here and says, that it's intended to be poured out on all people. And that's exactly what happened. That very day, 3,000 people were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the New Testament believers, I, I would love to do a class sometime on baptism with you, but at, at, it, because it's just fascinating. But if you go through the New Testament and look at every time a new believer was brought to the faith, they were always baptized in water and baptized in the Holy Spirit, not necessarily in that order. There are several accounts where people were baptized with the Holy Spirit first and later were baptized with water. It's two different things. So we're still left with the question, so why do we have two different things? Why did the 11 who could already do signs and wonders need to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit? And the answer is in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 7. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are given so that the body of believers, the body of Christ on earth, can operate in a coordinated, unified manner, just as if our head, Christ Jesus, was still with us. That's why he didn't need to send the Holy Spirit till after he left. While he was here, he was sending out the 11 and the 70 and doing all that stuff. But once he left, he sent the Holy Spirit to coordinate us. 
it was it's we think of the Holy Spirit as the as the gift giver and he does but he gives different gifts to different people for different purposes and then he orchestrates it notice what Paul says about the ability to do miracles and signs this is a continuation of that same passage to one there is given through the spirit the message of wisdom to another the message of knowledge by means of that same spirit to another faith by the same spirit Isn't that interesting that faith is a gift and when you see people struggling with faith, you need to pair them up with somebody who has the gift of faith, right? It's not a bad thing to struggle. It's okay. To another, gifts of healing by that one spirit. To another, miraculous powers. See, not just because you're filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you can do miracles. But for some people it does. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues, which in my mind puts pay to the claim of some Christians that if you can't be filled with the Spirit unless you're speaking in tongues. It, yes, speaking in tongues is a gift of the Spirit, but it's not like a requisite gift of the Spirit. It's just a gift of the Spirit. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. The Spirit gives us as he determines. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. Not everyone needs to be able to work miracles, but everyone needs to be baptized in the Holy Spirit separately and distinctly from being baptized in repentance and entering Christ. This is, we have to, it's a two-step thing. The baptism in water, you enter Christ, okay? And in the baptism in the Holy Spirit, you enter the community. You become a functioning and viable part of the body of Christ. The fragmentation and conflict among Christian believers today is, I believe, proof that many who profess to be Christians are not walking as believers. We couldn't possibly be filled with the Holy Spirit and be so divided among ourselves. No wonder Christianity has a bad name. It is full of pretenders and people who have drifted away like the Hebrews were in danger of doing. And that's why the study of Hebrews is so vital for us today because we are faced with exactly the same dangers that they were faced, these early Jewish Christians who are struggling with these questions.